Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So far this year, I have preached sermons with one-word titles. I began with happiness. The next Sunday I preached order. Today's sermon is freedom. With these sermons, my goal is not to step away from what is going on in our world, but to step back and consider underlying principles and virtues that will help us live faithfully in the midst of what is going on around us. Right now in the world around us, there has been a lot of talk about freedoms, freedom to assemble, freedom to speak, to bear arms, to worship, and freedom from things like tyranny. Well, let's step back and ask ourselves what it means to be free in Christ. For guidance, I go to the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians. In this chapter, Paul speaks of freedom in two ways. As I read the chapter, listen for a shift in tone from, oh, yes, I can, to, but I won't. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to our food and drink? Do we not have a right to be accompanied by a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who at any time pays the expenses for doing military service? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat some of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not get any of its milk? Do I say this on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Or does he not speak entirely for our sake? Oh, it was indeed written for our sake. For whoever plows should plow in hope, and whoever threshes should thresh in hope, in hope of a share in the crop. Now, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not still more? 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is sacrificed on the altar? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to you so that they may be applied in my case. Indeed, I would rather die than that. No one will deprive me of my ground for boasting. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation I may make the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free in respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by this means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as those beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second Presbyterian's leadership is making plans to get through this pandemic but also making plans for a post-pandemic future. They are in, good, in the good company of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Leading the nation through the Second World War could have consumed the president, and many millions of dollars needed to be raised for the war effort, but Roosevelt was already thinking about what our nation would become when the war was over. And he gave a speech in which he cast a vision of a post-war nation that would be founded on four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. The first two were familiar to Americans because they were about freedom from restraint. But the second two, well, they were more pastoral. They spoke to the real fears of the nation. Freedom from want 
spoke to a nation with recent memories of the Depression. And freedom from fear spoke to those worried about harm coming to loved ones during the war. Both to support the war effort now and to help spread the vision of what the nation will become in the future, Norman Rockwell was asked to illustrate the four freedoms with four paintings. Prints would then be sent to those who purchased a minimum amount of war bonds. Well, Rockwell wanted to do a good job. He knew how important this was. And to focus on this project, he was even granted a temporary leave of absence at the Saturday Evening Post. For three months, he did not have to supply a single painting for the magazine's cover. (laughs) It didn't help. Rockwell couldn't focus. He had what you might call painter's block. The four freedoms seemed too lofty of ideals to illustrate in a painting. I mean, what pictures could he paint that would inspire millions of ordinary citizens to buy bonds just so that they could have the prints? Two and a half months passed, and Rockwell hadn't produced the first painting. And then, by coincidence, Rockwell attended a local town meeting. And he saw a man rise to speak wearing a worn jacket, a flannel shirt, and work pants. The man had something on his mind. He had something to say, which he knew was going to be unpopular. But he said his piece, and those around listened with respect. That moment of open debate without violence inspired Rockwell. It occurred to him that lofty ideals become real when they are ordinary, everyday, local experiences. And so he painted all four pictures from the perspective of his hometown. Freedom of speech. He painted that very man who stood up to speak at the town hall meeting. Freedom of worship. He painted a sideways view of people in a pew praying. Freedom from want. He painted a grandfather placing a platter with a huge turkey down on a family table. Freedom from fear. He painted parents tucking safely their two children into bed. Well, these prints were amazing successes. People so wanted them that over $131 million worth of bonds and stamps were sold. And that was 1940s money. I love how the first two of Roosevelt's freedoms, the freedom of speech and the freedom of worship, are about protecting one's own individual rights. And how the second two freedoms, the freedom from want and the freedom from fear, are about protecting each other. A lovely balance. A number of writers, scholars, historians, theologians, have been suggesting that maybe we have lost that balance. They wonder if a growing individualism has pushed our country into focusing too much on individual rights and less on the common good. One of the writers, David Brooks, said this, In our culture, we think of freedom as an absence of restraint. That's freedom from. But there is another, higher form of freedom. That is freedom too. This is the freedom of fullness of capacity, and it often involves restriction and restraint. 
You have to chain yourself to the piano and practice for year after year if you want to have the freedom to really play. And you have to chain yourself to a certain set of virtuous habits so you don't become slave to your destructive desires. The desire for alcohol, the desire for approval, the desire to lie in bed all day. He then quotes Tim Keller, who says that freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions, but finding the right restrictions. Shockingly, it is the chains you choose that often set you free. The Apostle Paul would agree. In our chapter, the one I read, where anyone would begin, that's where he begins arguing for individual rights. Am I not free, Paul begins. Take note of the ground on which Paul declares his freedom. You might be shocked to see that the ground on which Paul is declaring his individual rights is his and Barnabas' right to be paid. It wasn't that many years before that Jesus was born, so preaching the Christian gospel and establishing Christian communities of faith are not vocations of long standing. But still, it's work that is worthy of compensation. And Paul defends that. He appeals to logic. He quotes scripture and he talks about what is fair. I won't rehash it all. I'll just remind you of some of his interesting points. So what if we are doing something new? Temple priests have been paid for centuries, shouldn't we? Hey, military individuals, military people don't pay for the right to serve. They get paid. Vineyard owners are going to eat some of their fruit, and those who tend to flock are going to drink some of the milk. Did you see in Scripture where we are commanded to let oxen eat while they are treading out the grain? You know, don't you, that Scripture was really talking about workers deserving to share in the results of their labor. I like this one. Uh, Barnabas and I are not married, but if we did have spouses, don't you think that we should be free to feed our families? And I love this one because it sounds like Paul is a negotiator for the pastor's union as if there were such a thing. He says, if we have sown spiritual good among you, shouldn't there be material benefits? Now, I'm a pastor with a family to feed, so it makes me want to give Paul a high five or an elbow bump or a thank you spoken through a mass from six feet away and two centuries away. By the way, remember all those points next Sunday when you're asked to vote on a compensation package for our next associate pastor. Paul's arguments here at the beginning of the chapter, they they border on the self-interested, or it sounds like that, doesn't it? But then the chapter takes this major and surprising turn. After Paul makes this well-thought-out biblically grounded argument based on what is reasonable and what is fair. He then says, but I've turned down being paid by you and I don't want to be paid by you now. Well, what was all that for then, Paul? Why did we have to listen to three paragraphs if you're arguing for something that you now say that you're going to refuse? Can we have that time back? Context is helpful here. It is helpful to know that Paul is actually not in a salary negotiation. 
but he's actually justifying his refusal to accept pay. He only argues that he is free to accept compensation to justify his refusing compensation. Paul is moving from one kind of freedom, his right to claim what is his, to a higher form of freedom, his freedom to surrender his rights for the greater good. You see, Paul loves the whole divided and conflicted Corinthian church. To understand how conflicted is this church, you need to read the entire letter, but if you do, it'll become obvious to you. There is within this community smaller silos of believers who are contending against each other for power and control. For the sake of time, I won't get into the details of those issues, but they're about personal behavior, class divides, and who is more spiritual than whom, or who is more right than whom. And each group wants Paul's endorsement. Now, it's possible that some have tried to manipulate Paul by withholding pay, which accounts for the first half of the chapter when Paul asserts his right to be paid. But more problematic is the lobbying, those who are trying to pay him, expecting his endorsement. Paul's not going to be corrupted by church lobbyists, so he refuses pay. But he's not going to quit preaching the gospel. He's going to continue to love the whole church with all of its factions by preaching the gospel and urging reconciliation. And he is not going to take on someone else's enemies as his own. He is going to be a Jew for the Jews. He is going to be a Gentile for the Gentiles. He's going to be vulnerable for the vulnerable because he wants to win them all with a story and the message of God's grace. He'll earn his keep by making tents on the side, but he is going to love everyone no matter their status. And as evidenced by what he says later in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, He expects them to do the same. And then Paul steps back just a little bit more to say the most important thing that we need to hear today. He talks about the fundamental freedom Christians must claim if they truly are going to follow Jesus. He uses a sports illustration to make his point. Look at the elite athletes, he says. They excel not because they are free to do whatever they want to do, but because they choose what not to do. With their freedom, they accept constraints. They say many no's to certain foods and activities that's going to hold them back. They say many no's to live their yes. They deny themselves to become their best selves. David Brooks talked about the sacrifices pianists make to become great musicians. Think of the sacrifices good parents make for the sake of their children, that good friends make for the sake of their friends, that good citizens make for the sake of their country, that peacemakers make to win reconciliation, the sacrifices, the things that they deny themselves, all except constraints so as to be free to love. If I were to find a text for our chapter that moves from one's individual rights to the greater freedom to love, it would be in the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, when Paul says, 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In light of that statement, let's us right now think of those freedoms that we Americans have and ask ourselves the question that Paul would ask of us, that I think Jesus would ask of us. After we know what is our right to claim, what are we then free to surrender for the sake of others? We have freedom of speech, but just because we can lie, gossip, and hurt others with our words, does that mean that we should? What truth can we tell? What can we share that will heal rather than hurt? We have the right to assemble, but for what purpose? To form our silos against each other? Or maybe to gather with loved ones because they are a priority? Or to gather with those with whom we disagree and with whom we are different so that we can understand each other and we can build a community together? Or maybe to worship God because we need constant reminders that there is a greater good to serve than ourselves. Or maybe to support a worthy cause. Or to do as Paul did and to stand with the vulnerable. We have the right to read and watch what we want. Maybe Christians need to remember the warning of Proverbs that one's eyes are a window to one's soul, that we can become what we choose to see, and that if our eyes are drawn to rumors, to lies, to conspiracy theories, to degradation, we're likely to become the gossip, the liar, the deluded, the degraded. Maybe Christians choose instead to direct our eyes to what serves the truth and the greater good and to what feeds the soul. We have the right to bear arms. But Christians should ask if they should, and if so, what type and for what purpose. And we have the right to own property, And it's certainly our right to acquire and to hoard. But Christians need to ask ourselves how we're going to be good stewards of what we own. How are we going to take care of ourselves and our loved ones? And then how can we address the issues and problems of the world? We live in the land of the free, say we as Americans. But as Christians, should we not then choose how to be free? Being free in Christ is to say no to that which is false and destroys and what is evil and what is selfish and to say yes to what is true and what heals and what is good and what builds understanding and what is loving. That's the freedom of those who take up their cross to follow Jesus. They say many no's in order to live their best yes. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.